0: 1983 was a weird year for me. I was 10. That's just weird anyway. And, uh, but three things, these pivotal things that I remember from 1983. The first, uh, I've got some photos here. The first is this movie that I love. Anybody know this movie? This is War Games. That's Matthew Brodwick. Um For the younger kids, that's uh, Sarah Jessica Parker's husband. Uh, who was in a, you know, Hocus Pocus and that other TV show that is too awkward to say on the stage in a church. But if you don't know about the movie, uh, Matthew Broadwick plays this kid named David, and he has a computer, and um, he learns how to hack into um, kind of the government website thing that controls the nuclear weapons. And this is 1983, so there's a lot of talk and fear over nuclear war. Uh, We all lived through that. Uh, But the movie was basically about how he hacks into this system and accidentally, you know, gets the process started to start a global thermonuclear disaster. So the whole movie is about stopping this thing. Maybe you've seen the movie, maybe you haven't. Um, But what I remember feeling is like, well, that's scary. It's a little scary, isn't it? Uh, Which takes me to this next picture, which was a movie that came out uh, the same year. And this was a made-for-TV movie, which are always amazing. And uh, it was called The Day After. And letters went home from schools to parents all over the country saying, do not let your children watch this movie. Um, But we were Gen X kids, so the parents weren't even home. Um, (laughs) So, of course, we all watched the movie. And it was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying terrifying but also a very terribly done movie but terrifying nonetheless and this final picture is George Orwell's book 1984. Now I know what you're thinking well that's not 1983. I know just go with me. Uh, I used to go visit my father every other weekend that was the arrangement and the bedroom that I stayed in was full of books and one of them was 1984 and this is in the year 1983, and I never took it off the shelf, uh, but I always saw the big date on the side, and one day I asked him, "What is?" because I knew 1984 was coming, and I said, what is 1984 about? And all he said to me was, oh, it's about the end of the world. Okay, You know, so one after another, these end of the world scenarios kept coming up in my life, and so I never picked the book up. In fact, I never even read the book till two years ago. Uh, so there's some trauma there. And I remember New Year's Eve, 1983, going into 1984, being terrified as to what was coming in 1984 because of this book on the shelf. It's about the end of the world. You know, everything had been about the end of the world that year for me. I don't know if you grew up in those those uh, days, and maybe you remember that too. But it turned out to be this pivotal uh, year for me uh, as a 10-year-old, because it was the first time I really felt like maybe the world is uh, a little loose and maybe more fragile than I had imagined. And maybe it wasn't all that safe of a place or secure, and that under the right circumstances, uh, things could really come unglued. And I know as we get older, we recognize that to be the case. It's not as clean-cut and secure as we often imagine it to be. And it's one of the harder passages that we take in our lifetime, this movement from the more innocent view of the world into an awareness of how often things can break and how much pain and suffering can fill the earth. I love this line from the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter eight where he says, uh, we know that the whole creation has been groaning in labor pains. So things have never really been quite right. In this past week, the world has been watching the escalating violence and the ensuing war that's happening between Israel and the Palestinian enclave along the Gaza Strip. And the scenes and the stories, as you know, have not been easy to take in. And the hope of things calming down feels kind of faint right now. And uh, I decided that we needed to talk about that. Now, this is not an end-time sermon. I don't have any charts and graphs about the coming of the Lord uh, over the clouds on horses. It's not about that. I also want to let you know that, because people have asked me, um, you know, you're a Bible guy. What's going on? Um, you know, my education, my training is around an Israel that is thousands and thousands of years removed from today's Israel. And so it's very hard to put the pieces together. And most of what is happening um, is more recent history, more modern-day issues of which I know very little about. I know that surprises you, Um, but I'm not an expert in these things. But I think all of us can feel a sense of despair, but we also recognize the brokenness in the situation. And as Christians, what I felt was important today was to talk about perhaps what the right response to these realities would be for us. How would Jesus guide his people through these times and what is the right posture for the church because that's what we are. Now normally I would just plow ahead and pay a little attention to the noise that's happening in our world because there's just too much of it but the current unrest has definitely been difficult to avoid and I know that what's happening right now is on everybody's mind and I have felt this sort of leading in my heart to say a few things about the response that perhaps each of us could take. And the passage that Addie just read uh, before I got up here is a pretty well-known section of Matthew's gospel where Jesus casts this vision uh, for the ways of God in the world among his people. And he points to a number of traits that play out in the lives of those who follow him, at least the vision of those traits taking hold in people's lives. And these are traits that give shape to our faith. They're not talking about the same thing downstairs, by the way. Uh, They give shape to our faith and the way we practice our faith and our ways of being in the world. And what's interesting about the list is that each trait is considered a blessed trait. Or if you grew up in the church, blessed This blessed state of being, which is a word that indicates the nearness of God, the nearness to the person that God is and who is familiar with these things. And there are postures that Jesus gives in this section of Matthew that um, the church should hold. And I just want to reflect on two of them, not all of them, but just two of them that stand out uh, for me this morning. And the first one is this, where he says, Blessed are those who, what? Mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, in the church calendar, there are two seasons that are dedicated to lament and mourning. Surprisingly, Advent is one of them. And then Lent is the other one. Both are seasons where mourning, repentance, introspection is present. And we mourn over the way the things are in the world, but also in our own lives, recognizing and admitting our um, complicit involvement in the brokenness that is in the world. And there's this leaning towards grace and mercy and this hope of renewal. These are scheduled times where the church mourns. But there are other times, like the one that we're in now, where mourning is the proper response and the right response for what we're seeing and hearing. Because mourning is born out of compassion. And compassion, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, means to be sick to the stomach. This response to the pain and the suffering that we see in the world. Compassion is a guttural thing. You feel it. I like the uh, scene in Matthew chapter 9 where it says, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And I love that the compassionate response of Jesus is through his eyes. He sees. He's watching. And what he sees, he feels. And that is what compassion is. And mourning, this sense of lament, comes from compassion. Those who mourn are aware of what's happening in other people's lives. They see it, and they take it in at a very gut level and at a heart level. It's been very, um, you know, (laughs) one of the things we're learning right now is that social media is completely broken with all the information that's going around and misinformation and disinformation, there's a whole campaign to stop the bleeding of things that are true and aren't true. And as the old saying goes, in war, truth is the first casualty. It's too emotional. Everybody is looking for a winner. And one of the things that has upset me as a, as a person, as a pastor, is how when things like this happen, it's funny how quickly we treat it like a football game. Who's advancing, who's retreating, who's winning, who's scoring, and who deserves to win? And maybe those questions are important, but the most important response for us is that we are sad. Amen? Amen. That we are not happy, that we are not rooting, that we are not uh, othering people, that we are sad by what we see. When Jesus was at Lazarus' funeral, you know the verse, it's the shortest one in the Bible. Jesus wept. Why? Because people die. Lazarus is a friend, but at the end of the day, people die, and it's sad but those who mourn are aware of the pain that they see, and they feel it. Faith is often seen as a way out of suffering, a means of escape from the troubles of the world. But Jesus doesn't really advocate that kind of faith. Following Jesus as a journey into the realities of a painful life, former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams, said, if being baptized is being led to where Jesus is, then being baptized is being led towards the chaos and the neediness of humanity. Or Richard Rohr said, we think we know God through ideas, yet corporal theology, body theology, says weeping perhaps will allow you to know God much better than ideas. In this beatitude, he says, Jesus praises the weeping class, those who can enter into solidarity with the pain of the world and not try to extract themselves from it. Blessed are those who mourn. This is the response that God is calling us to. The call of Jesus here is for us to mourn what is happening, to be saddened by what we see, and to somehow feel the weight of what is broken about humanity and to long for renewal, or as the verse says, comfort, that they will be comforted. The second thing I want to point out, and and this is very short, um, because I'm not good at writing last-minute sermons, But Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called children of God. This is a very powerful uh, statement. It's the only time, by the way, the word peacemaker is in the Bible. Although peace is a theme throughout, this label on someone who is a bringer of peace and a maker of peace is unique. And I would say that I would love to say that everyone wants peace between people, but this is not always the case, as you know. There are people for whom conflict and division are things that they really, really enjoy. It's their uh, spiritual gift of creating division. They love to participate in arguments and fighting and pointing fingers and othering. They love that. And I have learned that it's really hard to silence those people. But this is quite simple, really, this Blessed Are the Peacemakers. It's be a person who makes and brings peace to those around you. And I know you might be thinking, what does this have to do with all that's going on? Well, not directly anything, because there's nothing we can physically do. in terms of where we live and where we are, but we can begin to practice what it means to be bringers of peace in our own relationships or in our world. In the larger setting, this includes hoping and praying for peace. We should do that. That should be the prayer of the church until this thing is done. And pulling for those on the ground who are working for peace. It breaks my heart to read the stories of those humanitarian workers who are just trying to bring some sense of balance. And we should be praying for those people. And I would say that we learn the value of peace by being a people of peace. It's not an idea. It's a thing we do. Amen. It's like you can read about prayer all you want, but you become a good person of prayer by praying. That's how you do it. You can know all the history about how to pray, how people pray, the words you say, but you become a person of prayer through prayer. And it's the same thing with peace and being a peacemaker. A lot of discipleship for Jesus is action, it's movement, it's something we do, it's animated. It's not just ideas. The ideas have a manifestation and a real life. And so the church is to be a people of peace. We say it in our benediction: send us now into the world in what? Peace, you know. That's what we, we mean that when we say it. It's a powerful exit strategy from this building. And so we learn the value of peace by being people who are actively involved in bringing peace just to those around us. You know, if you're married or if you've been to a wedding, I'm sure that you've heard or at least seen it embroidered on something, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, It's on a pillow, it's in a frame, but you've probably heard it at a wedding. And it is a fabulous passage about love But it is situated within a letter that Paul wrote to a community that was deeply divided. And that peace needed to be present among its members. And at the very end of that passage, maybe you know this part, he writes these words and they're very profound. And now faith, hope, and love remain, these three. But the greatest of these is what? Love. What is he saying? What's wrong with faith and hope? You know? Why aren't they also the greatest things? Well, I'll tell you why. Because one day, if we believe what Jesus says and if we trust what the Bible tells us, that one day, things like faith and hope will not be needed because we will be in the presence of God. But what seems to remain... Is the very nature of God, which is love. In other words, the faith and the hope that we practice and hold on to, one day we can set those aside because we're in the presence. You know, Paul also says in this letter, we kind of only see these things through a dim, you know, lens, but there'll come a day where we see quite clearly the things that we have been putting our faith and hope in, and those things will no longer be needed. But love remains. So maybe John Lennon was right. All you need is love. And I've said this a hundred times, if not more. Church is simply heaven's rehearsal. This is what we do. We practice what we know is coming We live in the present, but we participate in a future imagination. We are practicing what we know God is bringing. And so when Paul says, and now faith, hope, hope, and love remain these three, the greatest of these is love, our eyes should really zero in on the practice of love because that's all that's going to remain. So we might as well get used to doing that and again, this is so embedded in the process of being a peacemaker that we learn to love people. Amen? I have nothing else to say. My pages are, are done. It's blank. Um, but I just I want to encourage you, uh, as this congregation, to practice lament and mourning, that this is the first response. And that we pray for those who are working to bring peace. And that we ourselves are bringers and makers of peace.
1: Of war and peace, the truth it twists, its curfew go just glides. Upon four-legged forest clouds The cowboy angel rides With his candle lit into the sun Though its glow is waxed in black All except beneath the trees of Eden It's folded arms It's iron claws Attached To curbs neath Holes where babies wail. though it's Shadows metal badge All in all Can only fall With a crashing but meaningless Blow No sound ever